0: Hello, Joe. Are you ready for the first reading? I'm going to uh, start with when I said selected works that were short, very short. So, talk about. Uh, we'll start with uh. The Truth About Sancho Panza. Turn off the radio. Turn out the light. This is called one of the shortest stories. The Truth About Sancho Panza. Without making any boast of it, Sancho Panza succeeded in the course of years by feeding him a great number of romances of chivalry and adventure in the evening and night hours in so diverting from himself his demon, whom he later called Don Quixote, that this demon thereupon set out uninhibited on the matter exploits, which, however, for the lack of a preordained object, which should have been Sancho Panza himself, harmed nobody. A free man, Sancho Panza, philosophically followed Don Quixote on his crusades, perhaps out of a sense of responsibility, and had of them a great and edifying entertainment to the end of his days. That's it. Okay, I muddled through that pretty good. I got to get this light down here so I can read a little more fluidly. Okay, let's go with uh, story number two. Let's see, let's see. This one's called Poseidon. Poseidon sat at his desk, going over the accounts. The administration of all the waters gave him endless work he could have had as many assistants as he wanted and indeed he had quite quite a number but since he took his job took his job very seriously he insisted on going through all the accounts again himself and so his assistants were of little help to him it cannot be said that he enjoyed the work enjoyed the work he carried it out simply because it was assigned to him indeed he had frequently applied for what he called more cheerful work but whenever various suggestions were put to him it turned out that nothing suited him so well as his present employment Needless to say, it was very difficult to find him another job. After all, he could not possibly be put in charge of one particular ocean, quite apart from the fact that in this case, the work involved would not be less, only more petty. The great Poseidon could hold only a superior position. And when he was offered a post unrelated to the waters, the very idea made him feel sick. His divine breath came short and his brazen chest began to heave. As a matter of fact, no one took his troubles very seriously. When a mighty man complains, one must pretend to yield, however hopeless the case may seem. No one ever really considered relieving Poseidon of his position. He had been destined to be god of the sea since time immemorial. That was how it was to remain. What annoyed him most, and this was the chief cause of of his discontent with the job, was to learn of the rumors that were circulating about him, for instance, that he was constantly cruising through the waves with his trident, instead of which here he was sitting in the depths of the world's ocean, endlessly going over the accounts, an occasional journey to Jupiter being the only interruption of the monotony, a journey moreover from which he invariably returned in a furious temper. As a result, he had hardly seen the ocean, save fleetingly during his hasty ascent to Olympus, and had never really sailed upon them. He used to say that he was postponing this until the end of the world. For then there might come a quiet moment when, just before the end, and having gone through the last account, he could still make a quick little tour. Well, that's beside uh, let's see here. Let's go with another little, little shorty. Prometheus, okay, we'll go from one Greek mythic figure to another. I'm a little shorty. Ah, Prometheus. There are four legends concerning Prometheus. According to the first, he was clamped to a rock in the Caucasus for betraying the secrets of the gods to men. And the gods sent eagles to feed on his liver, which was perpetually renewed. According to the second, Prometheus, goaded by the pain of the beast, pressed himself deeper and deeper into the rock until he became one with it. According to the third, his treachery was forgotten in the course of According to the fourth, everyone grew weary of the meaningless affair. The gods grew wary, the eagles grew wary, the wound closed wearily. There remained the inexplicable massive rock. The legend tried to explain as it came out of a. Hmm. Prometheus. All right. Let's see here. Okay. This one's called A Common Confusion. Common experience resulting in a common confusion. A has to transact important business with B in H. He goes to H for a preliminary interview, accomplishes the journey there in 10 minutes and the journey back in the same time. And on returning, boasts to his family of his expedition. Next day, he goes again to H. This time to settle his business finally, as that by all appearances will require several hours. A leave very early in the morning, but although all the surrounding circumstances, at least in A's estimation, are exactly the same as the day before, this time this time it takes him ten hours to reach H. When he arrives there, quite exhausted in the evening, he is informed that B. Annoyed at his absence, had had left half an hour before to go to A's village, and that they must have passed each other on the road. A is advised to wait, but in his in his anxiety about his business, he sets off at once and hurries home. This time he covers the distance without paying any particular attention to the feet, practically in an instant. At home he learns that B. Had arrived quite early immediately after a s departure, indeed that he had met a on the threshold and reminded him of his business. but A had replied that he had no time to spare. he must go at once however <laughs> b. In spite of this incomprehensible behavior of A, however, several times, whether A was not back yet, but he was still sitting up in A's room. Overjoyed at the opportunity of seeing B at once and explaining everything to him, A rushes upstairs. He's almost at the top when he stumbles, twists a sinew, and almost fainting with the pain, incapable even of uttering a cry, only able to moan faintly in the darkness, he hears B. Impossible to tell whether at a great distance or quite near him, stamping down the stairs in a violent rage and vanishing for good. <laughs> oh man, that's crazy shit. I'm sorry. Oh, you can't call in. Well, you can text. <laughs> Are you liking these stories? I, I, I just—I'll read a different subject, of Greek mythology. The best for yeah, Good, I'm glad you're right. <clears throat> a lot of what Kafka writes is funny, but I didn't know that like he was really always trying to be funny. I just read that little brief thing just in kind of like mini prep for this. I didn't spend a lot of time, but I said, Oh yeah, let me, you know, um, but yeah, I just heard that he, he was really trying to be a, 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 like a humorist. Like, a, like Woody Allen. My dear, am I allowed to say that Woody Allen's a funny writer monster that he is? All right. Let's see here. All right. So, uh, Okay, here we go. Okay, I have to take a sip of beer here. Ah, keep my my whistle wet. Okay. Nerd humorous, yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, this one's called my neighbor. My business would be too loud or too soft. I guess you haven't commented, so I guess the the, the volume's okay, I'll assume. Let me know if it's not. So, my neighbor. My business rests entirely on my shoulders. Two girl clerks with typewriters and ledgers in the anteroom. My own room with writing desk, safe consulting table, easy chair and telephone, such as my entire working apparatus. So simple to control, so easy to direct. I'm quite young and lots of business comes my way. I don't complain, I don't complain. At the beginning of the year, a young man snapped up the empty premises next to mine, which very foolishly I had hesitated to rent till it was too late. They also consist of a room and an anteroom with a kitchen, however, thrown in. The room and anteroom I would certainly have found some use for. My two girl clerks feel somewhat overdriven as it is. But what use would a kitchen have been to me? This petty consideration was so responsible for my allowing the premises to be snatched from under my nose. Now that a young man sits there, harasses his name, what he exactly actually does there, I have no idea. On the door is a sign, high bureau. I've made inquiries, and I'm told it's a business similar to mine. One can't exactly warn people against extending fellow credit, after all, he's young a young and pushing man and probably has a future. Yet one can't go so far as to advise it, for by all appearances, he has no assets yet, the usual th- thing said by people who don't know. Sometimes I meet Harris on the stairs. He seems always to be in an extraordinary hurry, for he literally shoots past me. I've never got a good look at him yet, for his office key is always in his hand when he passes me. In a trice, he, is, he has the door open like the tail of a rat he has slipped through and I'm left standing again before the sign Harris Bureau, which I have read already far oftener than it deserves. The wretchedly thin walls betray the honorable and capable man, but shield the dishonest. My telephone is fixed to the wall that separates me from my neighbor, but I single that out merely as a particularly ironical circumstance. For even if it hung on the opposite wall, everything could be heard in the next room. I have accustomed myself to refrain from naming the names of my customers when speaking on the telephone to them. But, of course, it does not need much skill to guess the names from characteristic but unavoidable turns of the conversation. Sometimes I absolutely dance with apprehension around the telephone, the receiver at my ear, and yet can't help divulging secrets. Because of all this, my business decisions have naturally become unsure, my voice nervous. What is Harris doing while I am telephoning? If I wanted to exaggerate, and one must often do that so as to make things clear in one's mind, I might assert that Harris does not require a telephone. He uses mine. He pushes his sofa against the wall and listens, while I, at the other side, must fly to the telephone, listen to all the requests of my customers, come to difficult and grave decisions, carry out long calculations. But worst of all, during all this time, involuntarily give Harris valuable information through the wall. Perhaps he doesn't wait even for the end of the conversation, but gets up at the point where the matter has become clear to him, flies through the town with his usual haste, and before I have hung up the receiver, has already had his goal working against me. <laughs> oh man. Just what a what a mind man. This guy's just great. You know, just great. So, uh, I don't want to read anything long. He's got all kinds of little short things. Let me see. This is one. Oh, did I read this one yet? Fellowship. Uh, all right. You're going to have to bear with me 20 seconds. Today, so. uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to catch a buzz, but come on, man. This is Kafka. I need to catch a little bit of a buzz here. I have to. Fill a bowl. It's all broken up. There's nothing like putting the pro in procrastination. Just lay here on the East Coast and I got work to do, but that's okay. Ah, I'll get to it. Tomorrow's another day. Actually, I'm. I'm going to put two solid hours in before the night's out. No matter what, and still get up early tomorrow. Okay. Fellowship. We are five friends. One day, we came out of a house one after the other. First one came and placed himself behind, beside the gate. Then the second came, or rather he glided through the gate like a little hall, ball of quicksilver, and placed himself near the first one. Then came the third, then the fourth, then the fifth. Finally, we all stood in a row. People began to notice us. They pointed to us and said, those five just came out of that house. Since then, we've been living together. It would be a peaceful life if it weren't. For a sixth one continually trying to interfere. He doesn't do us any harm, but he annoys us. and That is harm enough. Why does he intrude where he's not wanted? We don't know him. and don't want him to join us. There was a time, of course, when the five of us did not know one another either. And it could be said, we still don't know one another, but what is possible and can be tolerated by the five of us is not possible and cannot be tolerated, tolerated with this sixth one. In any case, we are five and don't want to be six. What is the point of this continual being together anyhow? It is also pointless for the five of us, but here we are together and we'll remain together. A new, t- a new combination, however, we do not want just because of our experiences. But how is one to make this all clear to the sixth one? Long explanations would almost amount to accepting him in our circle. So we prefer not to explain and not to accept him. No matter how he pouts, his lips, no matter how he pouts his lips, we push him away with our elbows. And however much he push, we push him away, back he comes. How can you not have fun when you have Kafka to listen to, especially when someone that knows how to read? You know what's interesting, Joe? I, I guess anybody who can read, you know, knows how to narrate stuff or something, can do this, but... I haven't read a lot of these like in a long time and it's hard to like know where to put the emphasis or whether it should be a funny line, you know, like you have to know like kind of ahead of time and almost like you read it before, but I haven't read this stuff pre-read it, you know, just to know where to put the emphasis. That's why it's a little halty. It's not perfect, but you can kind of tell where it's going almost. Even if you don't know exactly what the guy's going to say, it's like, he's being ironic. He's being funny. You know, it's like almost taking a little, unspoken stage directions as if you're reading a play, you know? You know how like uh, if you ever read plays where it'll say softly, loudly, you know, because the words are just words. I mean, unless you put it in bold print, you know, how do you tell someone, right? How to translate the printed word into a direction on the stage, right? So. Uh, let's see. Oh, here we go. All I know is it's short. <laughs> if they're short, I'm reading them. Okay, I'm sorry, here, man. Uh, give me I second here. All right. Yeah, me too, man. All right. There we go. This one's called The New Advocate. We have a new advocate, Dr. Bucephalus. There's little in his appearance to remind you that he was once Alexander of Maldon's battle charge. Battle charger? Hmm. I'm going to start this over. The New Advocate. We have a new advocate. Dr. Bucephalus. There's little in his appearance to remind you that he was once Alexander of Macedon, Macedon's battle charger. Of course, if you don't know his story, you are aware of something, but even a simpler, simple usher whom I saw the other day on the front steps of the law courts, a man with a professional appraisal of the regular small better at a race course was running an was running an admiring eye over the advocate as he mounted the marble steps with a high action that made them ring beneath his feet. In general, the bar approves the admission of Bucephalus. With astonishing insight, people tell themselves that modern society, being what it is, Bucephalus is in a difficult position, and therefore, continuing also his importance in his history of the world, he deserves at least a friendly reception. Nowadays, it cannot be denied There is no Alexander the Great. There are plenty of men who know how to murder people. The skill needed to reach over a banqueting table and pink a friend with a lance is not lacking. And for many, Macedonia is too confining, so that that they curse Philip the father. But no one, no one at all can blaze a trail to India. Even in his day, the gates of India were beyond reach, yet the king's sword pointed the way to them. Today the gates have receded to remoter and loftier places. No one points the way. Many carry swords, but only to brandish them. And the eye that tries to follow them is confused. So perhaps it is really best to do as Percephalus has done and absorb oneself in law books. In the quiet lamplight, his flanks unhampered by the thighs of a rider free and far from the clamor of battle he reads and turns the pages of our ancient tomes you know there wasn't any real complicated oh yeah yeah oh yeah oh yeah i'm i'm reading for me i'm just reading i'm just <laughs> I'm, I'm just like enjoying the you know you know like if i was like in a room reading to people i wouldn't be saying this but i'd be acknowledging the body language and the response and people would be either looking the other way or (laughs) looking at their phone or they'd be interested. So yeah, no, 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 no. That's all. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just doing my thing. But um, that was a hard story to read for some reason. There wasn't any big words in there. I said Bucephal was right the first time and that wasn't an easy word, but it didn't, it didn't go in no direct. It was just very interesting. That's one of the little, what is it? One, two, three paragraph stories. I'm going to have to reread that sucker a few times. Oh, man, there's a couple I wanted to get to that I do remember, about sitting at a window. and uh... Yeah, I'm going to flip some pages for about 20 more seconds here, and then I'm going to get to another, maybe, uh... oh, I got Yeah, Hank, yeah. hey, give me a second here, and I'll, uh... I think, uh, Joe, you gotta get out of, like, get out on the internet because there's actually, uh, oh, as I was saying, I, I, uh, I looked up some, uh, kind of peripheral information about Kafka and the person whoever I was looking at. I, I wasn't even trying to look for it. I so, oh, who's, what's this? So, and I uh, was saying that uh, it's good to be read aloud, that, that Kafka, it, 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 because it does have a, a real humor to like everything he does. You know, uh, it, uh, it just lends itself to being read aloud. Oh, what I was going say, one of the reading rooms, I'm going to do something like Under Milkwood, which is a play by a poet named Dylan Thomas. Obviously, he's plays too, but he's you know, predominantly a poet. Mid 20th century, uh guy from Wales, 30s, I think, you know, did a lot of lectures here, etc. But um, he did a play that was not designed to be acted. So usually when it's stage, it's just people sitting on stools reading, you know, even if they already know the words. They they read it just because it's supposed to be read, you know what I mean. So it's not supposed to just be recited where people are just staring out or looking at each other. It's like, and there's a reason that it's read. Where they're they're reading their part. You see, they're not supposed to be as connected as if they weren't reading it. It's just very interesting. It's just a very very simple technique that just takes it to a like a not a, not an outer you know space level. It just brings it to like an inner level. It's just uh, you know. So. Dylan Thomas, if you like, whether uh, look them up. You know, the force through which the green stem grows, or something like that. Some poem about you You just feel the force of like nature, like forcing a a plant through the earth or something. It's just great. Uh, okay, okay. Let's see. This one looks short. No, not short enough. Go a little longer. Okay, here it is. Oh, yeah, here's two. Okay. Thank you for uh, indulging me. Okay. Give it up. It was very early in the morning. Streets clear and clean and deserted. I was on my way to the station. As I compared the tower clock with my watch, I realized it was much later than I had thought that I had to hurry. The shock of this discovery made me feel uncertain of the way. I wasn't very well acquainted with the town as yet. Fortunately, there was a policeman at hand. I ran to him and breathlessly asked him the way. He smiled and said, you asking me the way? Yes, I said, since I can't find it myself. Give it up, give it up, said he, and turned with a sudden jerk, like someone who wants to be alone with his laughter. Hmm. Our next opus, call it an opus, pretty short, called On Parables. Many complain that the words of the wise are always merely parables and of no use in daily life, which is the only life we have. When the sage says, go over, he does not mean that we should cross to some actual place where we could do anyhow if the labor were worth it. He means some fabulous yonder, something unknown to us, something that he cannot designate more precisely either, and therefore cannot help us here in the very least. Cannot cannot help here in the very least. All these parables really set out to say merely that the incomprehensible is incomprehensible. And we know that already. But the cares we have to struggle with every day, that is a different matter. Concerning this, a man once said, "'Why such reluctance? "'If you only followed the parables, "'you yourselves would become parables, "'and with that, rid of all your daily cares.'" Another said, "But that is also a parable.'" The first said, "'You have won.'" The second said, "'But unfortunately only in parable.'" The first said, "'No, in reality, in parable you have lost.'" That's one of my favorites. That's a really great story. I love that one. <laughs> it's like an Escher drawing, you know? You know, um, you know MC Eschers. You know, he takes you to these, like, levels of this. When we started, I like think you're hearing something really down, And it's like... Wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> hey, he didn't say nothing, but it sounded so smart. I it. This one's called the vulture. A vulture was hacking at my feet. It had already torn my boots and stockings to shreds. Now it was hacking at the feet themselves. Again and again, it struck at them, then circled several times restlessly around me, and then returned to continue its work. A gentleman passed by, looked on for a while, then asked me why I suffered the vulture. I'm helpless, I said. When it came and began to attack me, I, of course, tried to drive it away, even to strangle it. But these animals are very strong. It was about to... Sp- Bring in my face, but I preferred to sacrifice my feet. Now they are almost torn to, torn to bits. Fancy letting yourself be tortured like this, said the gentleman. One shot and that's the end of the vulture. Really, I said. And would you do that? With pleasure, said the gentleman. I've only got to go home and get my gun. Could you wait another half hour? I'm not sure about that, said I, and stood for a moment rigid with pain. Then I said, do try it in any case, please. Very well, said the gentleman. I'll be as quick as I can. During this conversation, Vultures had been calmly listening, letting its eye rove between me and the gentleman. Now I realized that it had understood everything. It took wing, leaned far back to gain impetus, and then like a javelin thrower, thrust its beak through my mouth deep into me. Falling back, I was relieved to feel him drowning irretrievably in my blood, which was filling every depth, flooding every shore. Whoa. Edgar and Poe. Yeah, yeah. That last one. I was like, boy, the vulture. Like the raven. That's a little even more woof. I think that's. I wonder if he wasn't doing that on purpose, dude. I wonder if he wasn't trying to like the let's cut to the chase, Edgar. You're glory, but check this out. That's that's really <laughs> it's really violent. Kind of like a whole different tone there, Franz. Ah. Wow. All right. The next story is called, right after that one in the book here, The Helmsman. Am I not the helmsman here? I called out. You? Asked a tall, dark man and passed his hands over his eyes as though to banish a dream. I had been standing at the helm in the dark night, a feeble lantern burning over my head, and now this man had come and tried to push me aside. And as I would not yield, he put his foot on my chest and slowly crushed me while I still clung to the hub of the helm, wrenching it around and and falling. But the man seized it, pulled it back in place, and pushed me away. I soon collected myself, however, ran to the hatchway, which gave on to the mess quarters, and cried out, "'Men, comrades, come here, quick! A stranger has driven me away from the helm!' Slowly they came up, climbing the companion ladder, tired, swaying, powerful figures. Am I the helsman? I asked. They nodded, but they had eyes only for the stranger, stood around him in a semicircle. And when, in a commanding voice, he said, don't disturb me. They gathered together, nodded at me, and withdrew down the companion ladder. What kind of people are these? Do they ever think, or do they only shuffle pointlessly over the earth? Huh. Yeah, writer's history, yeah, yeah. He was a pretty middle-class guy, you know? H- you know, yeah, I think. Like a lot of these guys, he had a day job. As a cleric, because that's the only jobs you can get in a lot of these places. Like, uh, I think they're, they're like an insurance salesman or something. But. <clears throat> okay. Continue. Okay, this is called The Top. Uh Uh-oh. Ten-second tope break. Oh. It's interesting that you mention... Poe, because, so Poe was what, mid-19th century, 1850-ish, you know, whatever, give or take, he didn't write everything in one year, but you know, mid-19th century, and Kafka was early 20th century, so uh, he was obviously very familiar with Poe, but you made an interesting point, I never, I would, I wonder if I could read some of the people that knew Kafka, how much he was influenced by Poe, because there's some stories about, that are pretty gruesome, besides the short one that I read. Like the trial and like people that are be, you know, the hunger artists, people that are being tortured endlessly in prison, you know. So I don't know if all the Kafka is supposed to be humorous, but uh, who knows, right? Everybody's affected that writes or whatever from everybody before them in some sense, I guess. But uh, anywho, <clears throat> our next offering, as I suggested, a slight genre, yeah. Mm hmm the top a certain philosopher used to hang about wherever children were at play and where, where and wherever whenever he saw a boy with a top he would lie in wait as soon as the top began to spin the philosopher went in pursuit and tried to catch it he was not perturbed when the children noisily protested and tried to keep him away from their toy so long as he could catch the top when it was still spinning he was happy but only for a moment Then he threw it to the ground and walked away, for he believed that the understanding of any detail, that of a spinning top, for instance, was sufficient for the understanding of all things. For this reason, he did not busy himself with great problems. It seemed to him uneconomical. Once the smallest detail was understood, then everything was understood, which was why he busied himself only with the spinning top. And whenever preparations were being made for the spinning of the top, he hoped that this time it would succeed. As soon as the top began to spin, he was running breathlessly after it. The hope would turn to certainty. But when he held the silly piece of wood in his hand, he felt nauseated. The screaming of the children, which hitherto he had not heard, which now suddenly pierced his ears, chased him away, and he tottered like a top under a clumsy whip. There you go. (laughs) Okay. This is called... And beer. Ah, right. All right, man. Well, here's to you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah, man. I mean, you know, I, I, I could be stone cold sober and enjoy Kafka, but, you know, you're just... Sitting there, and you're just like having a cocktail, and you're just like catching a buzz. The stuff is just like, come on, how can you not enjoy it? So. All right, this is called A Little Fable. Alas, said the mouse, the world is growing smaller every day. At the beginning, it was so big that I was afraid. I kept running and running, and I was glad when at last I saw walls far away to the right and left. But these long walls have narrowed so quickly. That I am in the last chamber already, and there, in the corner, stands the trap that I must run into. You only need to change your direction," said the cat, and ate it up. <laughs> <sighs> okay, this is uh. Homecoming I have returned. I have passed under the arch and am looking around. It's my father's old yard, the puddle in the middle. Old useless tools jumbled together, blocked the way to the attic stairs. The cat lurks on the banister. A torn piece of cloth once round around a stick in the game flutters in the breeze. I have arrived. Who's going to receive me? Who's waiting behind the kitchen door? Smoke is rising from the chimney, coffee is being made for supper. Do you feel you belong, do you feel at home? I don't know, I I feel most uncertain. My father's house it is, but each object stands cold beside the next, as though preoccupied with its own affairs, which I have partly forgotten, partly never known. What use can I be to them? What do I mean to them? Even though I am the son of my father, the old farmer, and I don't dare knock at the kitchen door, I only listen from a distance. I only listen from a distance, standing up in such a way that I cannot be taken by surprise as an eavesdropper. And since I am listening from a distance, I hear nothing but a faint striking of the clock passing over from childhood days. But perhaps I only think I hear it. Whatever else is going on in the kitchen is the secret of those in there, a secret they are keeping from me. The longer one hesitates before the door, the more a strange one's be, one becomes. What would happen if someone were to open the door and ask me a question? Would not I myself then behave like one who wants to keep his secret? <laughs> okay, and relatively speaking, I read that one really good. That was nearly... Flawless. <laughs> that, just, that just came out. <laughs> Tripping me off the tongue at this end. Okay. This is called The Departure. I ordered my horse to be brought from the stables. The servant does not understand my orders. So I went to the stables myself, saddled my horse, and mounted. In the distance, I heard the sound of a trumpet, and I asked the servant what it meant. He knew nothing, and he had heard nothing. At the gate, he stopped me and asked, where is the master going? I don't know, I said, just out of here. Just out of here. Out of here. Nothing else. It's the only way I can reach my goal. So you know your goal? He asked. Yes, I replied. I've just told you. Out of here. That's my goal. (laughs) Okay. Let's see here. Where actually a little different, because uh, some of these are longer. Oh, okay, here we go. Okay. Good, good, okay. Yeah, yeah, good, Joe. I'd like to be able to. Oh, okay. Uh, I guess maybe I don't know if we show sure there But in the meantime, these are real shorties, so. These are like four of them on one page, so. This is called the trees. For we are like trees. Okay, this is I love this one too. <clears throat> the trees. For we are like tree trunks in the snow. In appearance, they lie sleekly, and a little push should be enough to set them rolling. No, it can't be done, for they are firmly wedded to the ground. But see, even that is only appearance. Okay. Clothes C L O T H E S clothes, clothes. <laughs> Often when I see clothes with manifold pleat frills, and appendages which fit so smoothly onto lovely bodies, I think they won't keep that smoothness long, but we'll get creases that can't be ironed out, dusk lying so thick in the embroidery that it can't be brushed away, and that no one would want to be so unhappy and so foolish as to wear the same valuable gown every day from early morning till night. And yet I see girls who are lovely enough to display attractive muscles and small bones and smooth skin, and masses of delicate hair, and nonetheless appear day in, day out in this same natural fancy dress, always propping the same face on the same palms and letting it be reflected from the looking glass. Only sometimes at night, on coming home late from a party, it seems in the looking glass to be worn out, puffy, dusty, already seen by too many people, and hardly wearable any longer. I like that one. Okay, here's a really, another one, it's just a short, even shorter. So. It's called Excursion into the Mountains. I don't know, I cried without being heard. I don't know, I do not know. If nobody comes, nobody comes. I've done nobody any harm, nobody's done me any harm, but nobody will help me, a pack of nobodies. Yet that isn't all true, only that nobody helps me. A pack of nobodies would be rather fine on the other hand. I'd love to go on an excursion, why not? a pack of nobodies into the mountains, of course, where else? How these nobodies jostle each other. All these lifted arms linked together. These numberless feet treading so close. Of course, they're all in dress suits. We go so gaily, the wind blows through us and the gaps in our company. Our throats swell and are free in the mountains. It's a wonder that we don't burst into song. So, uh... See, now, it seems like you're still there. If you would give, oh, man, can I dig this up quick enough? I wanted to um, play one more, like, amazingly brief. Oh, if I can find it. I'm not sure I can up. Oh yeah. I think it's here. Oh. Give me a second. Um Oh well, I'll have to be next time perhaps. Yeah, so I had fun there. Uh, gonna read you. I was actually gonna read you like a brief little paragraph thing that I wrote once about buffaloes. <laughs> kind of not bad, actually. Oh, you're charging no. iPhone. Shit, shit. Just Yeah, I don't know. I don't think it's, the only thing it's got is good rhythm. But I don't know. Be brutal if you think this sucks. Right? Just, not gonna give me a Pulitzer anyway. Who cares? It's Just gonna sit in a drawer. <laughs> but just for the hell of it, it's called "Ode to Buffalo." Right? Ode to Buffalo. And I think I hear the echo. Of the thundering herd of bison Lasting longer than the day One hundred thousand strong Just one of hundreds more Just herds of wild and strong Unruly beasts As yet unburdened by the white man's Wanton killing And the native's excess Yes it is Yes it is the not so faint And getting stronger timeless echo Of the thundering hundred million Endless herd of mighty bison That's it That's the end of it. Um But yeah, it would be a lot more fun if you could talk. <laughs> so yeah, next time man we'll uh Yeah well thank you for listening. But uh Yeah, I'd be interested to see what types of written material you're you'd be interested in reading or having read we could do like a book club thing or whatever that's kind of the whole hopefully somewhere in the future we'll do something like that but yeah meantime have a great night and as they say peace love and underwear stains <laughs> um yeah is your new name Q? John Q. Citizen. No, that's Joe, Joe Citizen, right. But there's there's a... Uh, there's a... Uh, I don't know, it's just some character in a movie or something. John Q. Citizen. Anyway, yeah. Uh, talk to you soon. I'm going to end this room, maybe join one. And get busy on a few late chores. We'll probably talk to you soon, man. Thanks. See ya.